Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Dr. Jonathan Welch. For many years, Jonathan has served on the pastoral staff in the worship and leadership training at Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. In this clip taken from our 2021 Doxology and Theology Conference, Jonathan discusses the ways that praise can serve as protest. Welcome to this session entitled Praise as Protest, where we will investigate protest as a potent metaphor for aspects of gathered Christian worship. Now, I imagine that many of you, like me, serve and shepherd in America. For at least a year now, we have witnessed a series of public protests and political demonstrations in cities all across the United States, typically advocating for social justice and calling for an end to systemic racism. Now, we could very easily spend our entire session today discussing practical ways to address issues of justice, issues of of equality and equity. I think our churches need many more conversations about how worship can contribute to public action. And I'm grateful to God for the many congregations and church leaders that are already standing up and speaking out for biblical views of justice. I'm speaking on this topic today because I believe that for many of us, our initial understanding of praise as protest might actually be too narrow. In the time we have together today, my goal is to challenge each of us to reimagine worship in a way where almost any expression of praise can be a form of protest. And I believe that this broader view where every praise is a protest can help us reimagine political activism in worship which will then help us become even more effective in advancing biblical concerns of shalom, justice, and love for our neighbors all over the world. All right, well, let's get straight to it. There's two parts to our investigation today. First, why praise is protest, and then how praise can protest. In part one, we'll discuss why praise is protest, and then we'll follow that with a consideration of how our praise can protest. First of all, why praise is protest? The idea of praise is protest requires a reorientation to the relationship between politics and worship. You see, a number of factors in Western society have conditioned all of us to believe that politics and religion should always be as separate as church and state. Such ideas lead to a number of related assumptions that one, politics should not be worship, and two, worship should not be political. Well, as Christians, we desperately need to revisit and reevaluate these two assumptions. First of all, politics can most certainly be religious. We're all made to be worshipers. It's part of what it means to be human. Worship is not something that we just turn on and off like a light switch. We are always worshiping something. So then the question becomes, what is the object of our worship as we go about our everyday lives? Maybe this is the reason why the Ten Commandments begin with two commands about worship. Exodus 20, verse 3 
you shall have no other gods before me. And then in the following verse, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or an idol. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God knew the original sin of Genesis 3 altered the way of life for future generations. He knew that we would be tempted to worship idols in various forms. In a fallen world, almost anything under the sun can become an idol or an object of religious devotion, even politics. Now, this observation generates one possible explanation for the explosiveness and division in American conversations of politics. Maybe politics has become an arena of worship, and maybe it's become the primary source of our identity. In that sense, politics can most certainly be religious. Second, just like politics can contain dimensions of religion and worship, the church must also reacquaint itself with politics. In other words, we must reconsider our definitions of politics and what it means to be political. You see, our trouble with politics arises from an unnecessarily narrow understanding of politics. Just like worship is more than the songs we sing on Sunday, our politics is so much more than how we vote, particularly for the Christian. For many of us, every time we hear politics, we only think about it in relation to federal, state, and local systems of government. However, now I want you to pay close attention to this. Politics can also be defined in a broad sense as the art and science of associational relationships. Associational relationships. In other words, the essence of politics is the general organization of persons together toward a shared purpose. So there can be a politics to almost anything that involves interactions between people. This view changes the conversation for us. While the Bible may not tell us directly which politicians to endorse or which systems of government to use. Our Bibles are filled with political ideas, political themes, and political applications. The politics of Christianity is built upon the, upon the cosmic reign of God himself as sovereign ruler and eternal king. What Bible verses come to mind for you? For me, I go to Isaiah 6.1, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Or Isaiah's prophecy of Jesus the Son in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. As Christians, we are citizens, Ephesians 2.19, of a heavenly city, Hebrews 11.16 and 12.22. No human ruler and no human government can ever replace our allegiance with the kingdom of God. We must obey God rather than human authorities, Acts 5.29. Simply put, when compared to the rest of the world, we serve a different ruler and live under different rules. One resource that explores these ideas at length is Jonathan Lehman's Political Church. In this book, Lehman speaks directly to the political dimension of Christian worship when he states, to bow the knee in worship, both literally and metaphorically, is an act of political fealty. 
an affirmation of God's persons, activities, and judgments. Indeed, humanity's political mandate in a word is to worship. It is to corporately reflect the Trinity's own holiness, justice, love, unity, and glory through the process of bringing God's generously authorizing rule to all creation. That's a loaded statement. A biblical passage that complements this idea is Psalm 22, 3, which says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Don't miss the massive political significance of this verse. God, the royal ruler, is actually enthroned on the praises of his people. Wow. All right, let's connect the dots here. If worship is political and protests are political demonstrations, then it follows that our worship of God can also function as protest. I'll say that again. If worship is political and protests are political demonstrations, then it follows that our worship of God can also function as protest. But this statement leads us to a follow-up question. How exactly does praise facilitate protest? In this next section, I want to briefly unpack the idea of praise as protest by describing three ways that praise can protest. Three ways that praise can protest. First, praise declares political allegiance. As followers of Jesus Christ, we must not be confused about our primary political affiliation. We follow the one who is described in Revelation 1.5 as the ruler of the kings on earth. Our primary citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20, and we look forward to a heavenly country that is better than any present political experience on earth, according to Hebrews 11. Here's why this is significant. It can be tempting for many of us to compartmentalize or reduce our praise to one, something personal and private, or two, an experience that only seems to affect our souls or this spiritual dimension of life. Our praise is so much more. So to this end, I find it helpful to talk about praise and worship as a profession of our allegiance to God. Our praise is a profession theologically and politically of our affiliation and our allegiance to the triune God as his citizens and subjects. Now, for a second way that praise can protest, praise subverts the idols of this world. It's no secret the world provides a steady stream of attractions and temptations to entice us to worship something other than God. This was the problem for Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and the problem has continued in humankind ever since. Perhaps our greatest weapon in our struggles against idolatry is, in fact, praise. Praising the true God awakens our souls to the glory of God. It puts idols in their place, and it dispels the allure of idolatry. Furthermore, our praise of the true God is a protest against the futility of worldly powers. Our declaration of God's worthiness allows us to perceive the worthlessness of idols. It's an offensive protest in all the right ways. This protest of praise and worship reorients our very identity. It pulls us away from idols and recenters us with a renewed perspective rooted in the eternal reign of God in Christ. Swiss theologian, Swiss theologian John Jacques von Allman captures this idea in his theology of worship. According to von Allman, Christian worship is the strongest denial that can be hurled in the face of the world's claim to provide men and women 
with an effective and sufficient justification of their life. There is no more emphatic protest against the pride and despair of the world than that implied in church worship. So let's break this down. Just like the gods of this age have blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4, here von Allman explains that the world provides various idols that clamor for our attention and claim to supply us with meaning and purpose. Don't miss this. Christian liturgy is an emphatic protest, in von Allman's words, against the powers of this age. Christian worship is a political demonstration and protest that effectively exposes the lies and the limits of all worldly powers, because Christian worship proclaims a kingdom, a power, and a glory which belong of right to God alone. Finally, a third way that praise functions is protest. Praise expresses divine discontent. Praise expresses divine discontent. At the heart of every protest is a desire for change. If we think about it, our praise also includes indirect expectations that change is coming for all of us. For example, when we praise God as eternal, we recognize that our current circumstances will one day pass away. When we praise God as Savior and Redeemer, we validate God's ability to change us and make us more into the image of Jesus the Son. And when we praise God as sovereign ruler and king, we acknowledge that our primary identity corresponds to a present and future existence with God and his heavenly kingdom. All of this is evidence that praise can be an expression of divine discontent. In other words, every praise is an opportunity for us to express how our present experiences in the world will leave us consistently dissatisfied and unfulfilled. In this way, praise is a protest, an objection to the lie that our present circumstances alone define our existence. Every one of our congregations, every one of our congregations gathers for worship in a social, cultural, and political context. For many of us, these contexts include social injustices, systemic racism, inequity and equality in various forms, sadness and sorrow, loss and lament and a host of other disappointments and discouragements, including division, disease, and even death. Circumstances like these make claims upon our identity as the people of God and tempt us toward a number of misbeliefs. But our praise of the triune God reminds us that this world is not our home. We are more than who our present circumstances say we are. And no matter the disappointment your congregation may be facing, our praise is a public profession that we will not settle for the status quo because in Christ, we receive so much more than our present sufferings. Now, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. described this view in one of his sermons on worship, stating, what does worship do for us? Worship helps us transcend the hurly-burly of everyday life and dwell in a transcendent realm. To build upon Dr. King's idea, we can say that every act of corporate praise foreshadows the cosmic picture of praise that we see in Revelation 4, Revelation 5, and Revelation 7. So my congregation's praises and your congregation's praises should awaken a divine discontentment with the, with the present age and stir a longing for our eternal home where our God promises to comfort the afflicted and to wipe away every tear from our eyes, Revelation 7, 17, 
where starvation and homelessness cannot exist because we will hunger and thirst no more and God himself will shelter us with his presence, according to Revelation 7, 15 through 16 where there is no more sin, no more sickness, and no more suffering, and where the entire universe resounds that salvation, deliverance, victory, power, might, honor, blessing, and glory belong to our God and to the Lamb. It's a chorus of praise that unites every division and rights every wrong. Isn't that image wonderful and beautiful and powerful? That's just a glimpse of how our praise functions as protest. I realize that much of our discussion today has been theoretical. If you were to take one thing and one thing only away from our session today, it's this. Let's start to view our songs of praise as statements of protest. Let's start to view our songs of praise as statements of protest. But what might this look like? Well, a number of the church's songs in Christian history were written to simultaneously praise God and edify the church in times of political unrest. One clear example of this is the Isaac Watts hymn, O God, Our Help in Ages Past. The text of this early 18th century hymn is an imitation of Psalm 90, but many of us may not realize the hymn was written in part as a response to the social and political issues that Watts faced in England in 1714. See, the British Parliament had passed a particular law that made life more difficult for independent Christians in England, and Watts belonged to this tribe. So the lyrics that would become, Oh God, Our Help, arose as Watts's way of encouraging British congregations to find comfort and hope in the eternal God and to remember that God's kingdom will outshine and outlast the British monarchy. The original nine stanzas of this hymn convey a message that is simultaneously theological and political. Another shining example is the hymn, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is widely regarded as a deeply political anthem, especially for black Americans. Though this song was not necessarily composed for Christian worship, the song found its way into a number of hymnals as the lyrics capture the experience of many black Christians and facilitate both lament and praise. Listen here to the words of this third and final verse of Lift Every Voice and Sing. God of our weary years, God of our silent tears, thou who has brought us thus far on the way, thou who has by thy might led us into the light, keep us forever in the path we pray. Lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met thee, lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. Shadowed beneath thy hand, may we forever stand true to our God, true to our native land. Amen. Now, at this point, I would encourage every worship leader, every pastor, every congregation to wrestle with just one application. What are you protesting with your praise? What are you protesting with your praise? It may be a general protest against the claims of the world, or you may choose to protest a specific political issue facing your community. Either way, let this idea of praise as protest influence how you plan for the words, the attitudes, and the actions of gathered Christian worship in your prayers, your songs, your scripture readings, and your celebrations of baptism and the Lord's Supper. How are we professing our allegiance to God as King? How are we challenging and subverting worldly idols? 
How are we expressing our lament and our longing for God to renew and restore our communities on earth as they will be one day in heaven? To the glory of the triune God and his everlasting kingdom, I ask each one of you directly, what are you protesting with your praise? That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, biblicalworship.com. Click podcast. We're happy to share with you the entire thing for free. While you're at our website, you can find information concerning other worship resources from the Institute for Biblical Worship and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's biblicalworship.com. That's what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by the lanky Evan Jarms, engineered by Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friend Joel Nagus. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.